at the moment, metformin remains the first choice in treatment algorithms for type 2 diabetes if you don't have a contraindication that I will address. Now, someday that may change as newer medications are tested against metformin monotherapy for things like cardiovascular outcomes and other measures, and we'll see if metformin still ends up the king of the first choice options in type 2 diabetics over the next years. But whether or not it is the first choice, it likely will remain a very important oral medication for a long time in treating type 2 diabetes. As I start tackling medication therapy in type 2 diabetes, I want to acknowledge some inconvenient truths. Many people are motivated to change, and that is a joy to see. They have a desire to lose weight, not only so they can post about it, but they have genuine motivation that they have found. There are also many type 2 diabetic patients that either won't change or can't change, meaning some of them are in such a quagmire that they may be so obese and unhealthy with heart disease, restrictive lung disease, and arthritis that asking them to change is always a good idea, but in reality doesn't occur very much. I've had patients who can barely walk on their arthritic knee, um, but they are too sick to safely get a knee replacement. We see patients that don't even refer to their knee anymore in terms of right and left, but refer to it as the good knee or the bad knee. And some of our diabetic patients we meet after they've actually had amputations, sometimes of one extremity or both extremities, which obviously further restricts their exercise ability. There are exercises you can do, but they do have restrictions and safety issues that they need to deal with. And then there are patients that potentially could change, but they tell themselves such fictions about what they can't achieve that no matter how many talks about lifestyle we have, they remain in a slowly progressive suicide mindset. They will remain sedentary with dangerous habits that include excess calorie consumption. And no matter how many documentaries are made about nutrition or people like me doing podcasts about exercise or other gurus emphasizing changing mindsets, it remains unfortunate that a very sizable number of people are not going to actively work to better themselves. Even the Buddha, while he did positively influence a sizable number of people, the majority of people do not adopt his teachings, including me. I'm not a Buddhist. I wish I was, but I'm way too type A. Listen, I also wish I was a vegetarian, not just so I can tell everyone every eight minutes that I am. I think it would be better for my health. And no, it definitely would be better for the animals stuck in the industrial kill culture. But so far, I have not made that change. Despite the knowledge, it would be better for me for the positive. Instead, I am taking the advice from Yoda in one of my dreams when I told him my abs aren't showing, and he said, paleo harder, you must. Now, you may be into getting tan at beaches or drinking wine or motorcycles or race cars or football or whatever vice that you are not going to listen to your healthcare professional about. Listen, bad decisions, they make the best stories, yet they do catch up with you. And as a side note, I'm speaking about vegetarians. I have a hunter friend here in Colorado that occasionally gives me jerky and steaks and recently gave me some jerky, and he assures me that the Latin definition of vegetarian is bad hunter, though so not sure he's correct about that. Anyway, it doesn't mean that a type 2 diabetic that makes bad decisions is a bad person or beyond all hope. 
but a medical practitioner constantly telling them to change and unrelentingly chiding their decisions as a problem, sometimes that just drives certain people away from treatment and they become even unhealthier. I know I have driven away some patients doing that. So it's important to try and find that balance of talking lifestyle and acknowledging it, but not coming off like an angry parent. You know, get off Facebook and bury your face in some real books and study something, which I haven't said to my kid today yet. Anyway, if you have that somebody that has made bad decisions and is not doing the blame game of the healthcare as the entire reason for their bad health and wants to work with you, I am all for helping that person. And it is that population that our goal is to pick medications where the benefit significantly outweighs the potential for harm. Someday there will be algorithms that replace people like me and will do a better job in the purely cognitive aspects of medicine. The day will likely come where artificial intelligence will pick medications and care plans with more biologic considerations and data than I can process. And I might become an unemployed couch potato watching Dr. Oz in The View, but until then, we have to make choices and learn our craft, which gets us to the story of medications and type 2 diabetes. So metformin is a medication that has existed for a long time. It existed back in the day when Lindsay Lohan was hot and even before then. A terrific first choice in type 2 diabetes because one, it doesn't cause hypoglycemia or very rarely does as monotherapy using it alone because it really doesn't change insulin concentrations all that much. But that gets to the point, which is one of my favorite questions for medical students and residents, which is how does metformin work? And I love seeing them squirm because none of us really know totally how it works. We do know that it decreases hepatic glucose production and increases insulin-mediated uptake of glucose into muscles. It decreases intestinal absorption of glucose. And according to an article I was just reading in the April 2018 Pharmacy and Therapeutics Journal that acknowledges those mechanisms I just mentioned, they also say, quote, Furthermore, recent studies have concluded that metformin increases GLP-1 secretion, inhibits DPP-4 activity, and upregulates GLP-1 receptors. And there will be other lectures on DPP-4 and GLP-1, so we'll get to that later. But it's interesting that metformin has so many different mechanisms of action that we are still learning about. It does some other things like it lowers serum free fatty acid concentrations, thereby reducing the availability of materials for gluconeogenesis, and it has a lot of benefits. It's been shown to decrease food intake and body weight. And man, do I sell those points when I'm trying to get a type 2 diabetic to take a medication for the first time, because everybody's hesitant to take a medication for the first time. But if you're like, well, we should try this, and it might result in some weight loss. And they're like, what? Yeah, it may result in some weight loss. They're like, well, okay, let's start. They've heard the magic words that have hooked them in. 
And then you explain what's going to happen, which is they probably will get some diarrhea and some abdominal discomfort. Now, there are some patients where that does not go away and you cannot push the dose, but usually in most patients at a lower dose, that does go away and then you can start increasing the dose. Now, the maximum effective dose of metformin is 2,000 milligrams over the course of a day. You can prescribe 2.5 grams a day, but you're gonna see little benefit once you've got into a total dosage of 2,000 milligrams daily. But you start 500 milligrams with a meal and then you gradually increase the dosing in divided dosages. So you move up to 500 milligrams twice a day and then eventually get to 1,000 milligrams twice a day if the situation calls for it, if they need that much medication. And each time you titrate up the metformin, that abdominal discomfort, that bloating, that diarrhea, sometimes nausea can return. And that's a big deal. We shouldn't put that to the side because, I mean, listen, you may think love is the best feeling, but if you have diarrhea, you know finding that toilet is an even better feeling. That being said, it's usually a transient thing. Now, the diarrhea can be dose-dependent, so there's some people that just can't get up to a higher dose, but most people end up realizing it's a transient thing and that it goes away, and actually only about 5% of patients have to stop metformin because of persistent diarrhea, but that's about 1 in 20 people, and a heck of a lot of people are on this medication. So there's a sizable you know, number, thousands, whatever it is, every year that have to stop this medication. Epigastric pain can be an issue for some of these patients as well. Another thing that's very important to mention because I'm getting better at reminding myself to test this and my patients with metformin, but probably as a profession, we could do a much better job, which is the adverse effect of B12 deficiency which potentially could worsen neuropathy. And as we all know, with diabetes, diabetic neuropathy is already a major concern. And with B12 deficiency, that can be caused by metformin because metformin reduces intestinal absorption of vitamin B12. The peripheral neuropathy can precede the development of a megaloblastic anemia. So if you see a high MCV anemia, you may be too late if this person's already having worsening neuropathy symptoms. So it's important to test our patients for vitamin B12 periodically. The other thing that obviously always comes up with metformin is lactic acidosis. Now, the incidence of metformin-induced lactic acidosis is very low. It really is, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. Now, by the way, Metformin-induced lactic acidosis can even occur in some patients with normal kidney function and normal hepatic function. Now, that's scary, but usually there's a reason behind that, such as a metformin overdose. But most of the time when you see lactic acidosis and somebody's taking metformin, there's usually other stuff going on, like septic shock or hypoxemic respiratory failure. And who knows how much of that lactic acidosis is from the metformin versus what we usually see lactic acidosis caused by, which is poor perfusion or hypoxia or a few other issues. 
but using metformin in late stage kidney disease can be problematic. So it is contraindicated in patients with an estimated glomerular filtration rate of less than 30 milliliters a minute. So metformin can be used in patients with kidney disease, but when their GFR drops below 30, it's probably a very good time to get off of that medication. I think the same thing is true for anybody that's actively abusing alcohol or has worsening liver disease or is in chronic hypoxic respiratory failure. They're going to have a higher lactate buildup. And then there's your patients that you see a lot, which are diabetics who have unstable or acute heart failure and therefore hypoperfusion and hypoxemia. And the metformin has to be held in that situation as well. So if you're coming in the hospital with acute CHF, you're probably best off in most situations holding the metformin. Then there are those patients where their GFR is not great. It's in that 30 to 44 range. And what do you do with them? So I don't have the total answer for that. There are some authors that think you should have the dose of metformin. There are some people that won't prescribe it, though it's not contraindicated for somebody who has a GFR greater than 30. As far as patients having their metformin held after getting contrast materials, such as at radiology or a heart cath, um, I've already addressed this in the contrast-induced nephropathy lecture. I mean, basically what it comes down to is you're worried that you could cause acute renal failure and then cause a lactic acidosis as a result. Does that happen in reality? Well, you're going to have a hard time finding evidence of cases where that has happened very much. But nevertheless, it is the standard of care. I just say if you're going to be playing that game because that's what's on every EHR and passed down through the last couple decades of what to do with metformin, then at least do it smartly. Don't just hold metformin for 48 hours and send the patient home. If you're really holding it, you have to recheck the GFR. So maybe the contrast-induced nephropathy is going to happen and worsen over the next five days. And you just said, oh, you don't have a PE in the emergency room. We just gave you contrast. Hold your metformin for 48 hours. And it doesn't really make clinical sense, does it? If your concern is that they're going to get a metformin-induced lactic acidosis from a contrast-induced nephropathy, then what you really should do is say, restart the metformin once your GFR is proven to be okay in 48 to 72 hours. So hopefully you can get the patient in to their primary care in two to three days to get that checked, but that's not always so easy in all places around the country. Another side effect of metformin, which is important to know because your patients will tell you this sometimes and they're not just coming up with things in their head, this is very real, which is metformin can cause a metallic taste in the mouth. It is the metformin that's doing that. Usually it's not a reason they need to stop the medication, but if it's really bugging them, you do have to take that into consideration. But these side effects aside that usually we can deal with, or I should say we, the patient can deal with um, if they're willing to, there can be a lot of benefit. And it's not always just the diabetes. I mean, metformin can do some cool things. I mean, for one thing, it lowers LDL, not a ton, but a small decrease in LDL. 
and it decreases serum triglycerides. So from a cardiovascular standpoint, there may be some benefit there. And there have been trials where metformin has been shown to lower cardiovascular mortality. That goes back to UKPDS, but other trials as well. And that's a big deal in diabetics is dealing with cardiovascular mortality. In fact, may just do a separate lecture on that. But of course, it goes beyond just myocardial infarction. I mean, there's stroke and there's vascular disease that causes amputations or at least contributes to it with neuropathy. And so metformin isn't the only drug that decreases cardiovascular mortality. We're going to get to other drugs in the diabetes class. And as I'm mentioning, there are other things we need to do, you know, statin therapy and others to decrease cardiovascular mortality in patients with diabetes. And that's why it may be worth doing that topic separately. But the point is, while we use metformin with the hope that it's going to lower fasting blood glucose and hemoglobin A1C, and it usually has a very good efficacy in doing that, usually about 1.5% for the hemoglobin A1C. And along those lines, metformin usually lowers fasting blood glucose by about 20%. So we use it in diabetics, and we use it sometimes in impaired glucose tolerance, but there are other mechanisms of action that metformin has. Now, some of them are becoming very interesting because the observational data started suggesting that metformin decreases cancer incidence. Now, cancer isn't just one disease, as we all know, but it's looking like metformin may inhibit certain types of cancer growth by suppressing HER2 and inhibiting mTOR. And there's certainly more to come about this potential anti-tumor effect that seems to induce apoptosis and cell cycle arrest for certain tumor cells. But the exact etiologies of all the ways it may do that and for which exact cancers has yet to be totally determined. But we know that it's being studied right now in certain cancers by real big cancer institutions as an add-on therapy. So it's pretty cool that there may be more to come from that. And we do use it in other diseases, right? Polycystic ovarian syndrome. And then there are the patients that have impaired glucose tolerance who are at high risk for developing type 2 diabetes. So it looks like metformin is likely effective in reducing the risk of converting into type 2 diabetes in patients with IGT, with impaired glucose tolerance. Though that's not usually the first place I go. I'd much rather convince somebody at that stage why lifestyle changes is better than immediately jumping to medication. But I know that it is common that metformin is used in patients with impaired glucose tolerance. And I can't really argue against it. I would just say if you're going to be a practitioner that does that, then I would strongly advise that you really emphasize lifestyle changes and getting off of metformin as the goal. And then there are two populations with impaired glucose tolerance where probably it's not a good idea to use metformin for the goal of trying to prevent type 2 diabetes. And the first population is it doesn't seem to be very effective in older patients who have impaired glucose tolerance. And then the other group is those that are not overweight. So as I discussed in the first lecture, not every type 2 diabetic is obese. We know that, right? And so some people just have bad genetics or other environmental causes as to why they have type 2 diabetes, and it's not always obesity 
in insulin resistance from obesity. Again, the point being that we just don't throw everybody with impaired glucose tolerance on metformin. It requires a lot of discussion and thinking about the specific patient population that you're targeting. And finally, it's also worth mentioning extended-release metformin. And the reason to use an extended-release metformin may be several, but mainly we use it to try and help alleviate the gastrointestinal side effects that I was talking about earlier. Now, both immediate-release metformin and metformin ER, metformin extended-release, are generic drugs. But you've got to be careful because, one, you never, ever should do a branded metformin. So some of these drugs can be 900% higher in cost, like Glumetza, metformin extended release. Why anybody wouldn't write metformin ER? I have no idea. Another one is Fortimet. So what's the difference in cost? Well, less than a penny a pill for a lot of pharmacies. And then you can go up to $83 a pill for Glumetza, 1,000 milligrams or $10 a pill for Fortimet, 1,000 milligrams. And patients can get rightly very upset when they are taking a medication that may be costing $4 a month at certain pharmacies as a generic, $30 a month, nothing too terrible, and then suddenly they're changed to a brand name because they need a coding because of the gastrointestinal side effects, and instead of writing the generic, they now have a bill at the pharmacy to pick this medication up for 480 bucks, 550 bucks. These stories exist and it's bad for medicine. It's bad for physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs. And even though we hate when this stuff happens, we have to be very on our toes that it is happening. This is runaway capitalism, meaning these companies are being bought out that once were cheap generic drugs, And then the price increase goes 800, 900% on something that was very cheap. And Western medicine suddenly doesn't look very tempting for a large part of the population that sees it all as a game and a scam. And it is a game and a scam. And when this runaway capitalism with outbreaks happens, whether it's saying that Coca-Cola should be allowed to keep cocaine or 7-Up keep lithium in their drinks. No, of course they weren't allowed to keep doing that. And this overly crazy free market conservative view that the markets will just take care of this and that metformin therefore will stay at 4 to 30 bucks. And the number of generic drugs that we can add to that list of incredible price increases, 2,000%, you know, not just talking about metformin, is getting sinful. I am a capitalist, as I have said, but there has to be breaks on it. The free market will take advantage of people, and it will take advantage of people for decades and decades. And these people don't have time for some magical free market correction that probably is never truly going to happen. And I think we have to talk about financial toxicities of medications along with physical toxicities. And that's going to be more important as we get into some of the other medications because metformin, we can prescribe generically and we can prescribe it to be a cheap, effective medication. Some of the newer medications are really cool and do some great stuff, but we also have to realize 
there can be a financial toxicity for a lot of patients who we prescribe them to. So we have to keep all this stuff in mind. And all those physicians out there and nurse practitioners and PAs, and I've met many people that are terrific people that truly believe we should never take into account any cost, that it's really just about always prescribing the single best thing for a patient. But that's not where the patient may be in their mind. They may not take that medication once they get to the pharmacy, and you may not be doing them a good service, especially if there is something that's equally or almost equally effective. And so we really do have to take cost considerations into all of our treatments for all diseases. And that's becoming a bigger and bigger issue that just can't be ignored anymore because it really is affecting the country. But thankfully, we have an effective tool in a generic metformin and even generic metformin extended release that is an effective weapon in our armamentarium against this very common disease of type 2 diabetes. So that's it for today. I will catch you on the next round. Dr. Gil Perot, signing off.